Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Coming Rapture. All right, well, if you were with us last week, then you know that when the Apostle Paul left Corinth, everything began to unravel. You remember how false teaching was allowed, tolerated in the church. And you remember how these false teachers that were espousing these false doctrines, that they were given a platform to, to, to teach their heresy. And it was causing doubt. It was causing confusion in the church. And so the false teaching of these false teachers had a horrible effect on the church of Corinth. And we've seen for 15 chapters how the Apostle Paul, chapter after chapter after chapter, has to correct things that had gone wrong in this church. Well, one of the false teachings that was floating around the church of Corinth was this. Some were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And so the resurrection was under attack in Corinth, and when the Apostle Paul found out, he sat down to write this section of his letter. We added chapters and verses later on to these early manuscripts, and we know it as 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul comes out swinging against this false teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. And if you've been with us, because now this is our third Sunday in chapter 15. And so if you've been with us, you know that all the way from verse 1 all the way through, the Apostle Paul has not given us a few, but he has given us many reasons why we should absolutely believe in a literal bodily resurrection in the future and not to doubt it, but not everybody's a believer, and not everybody was a believer in the church of Corinth, and so the apostle Paul, he knew, he anticipated that when this letter arrived in Corinth and they read it publicly to the church, that there would be skeptics and scoffers who would mock him and his position concerning a literal bodily resurrection, and so anticipating their unbelief anticipating their mockery, he writes now in verse 35. If you're looking at chapter 15, verse 35, just say amen so I know everybody's together here. He says, but someone will say, quote, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And so Paul anticipated that the skeptics would say, Yeah, sure, right, Paul. The dead are going to rise from their graves. What a joke. How's that going to happen? What kind of body are they going to come with? And, And no doubt, these skeptics were thinking thoughts like this, you know. We know that when a body goes into a grave, that that corpse decomposes. And if it's there long enough, eventually it turns to dust. And so how in the world is dust going to turn into some glorious, tangible body. Or, you know, someone's walking down the road and God forbid, you know, they're, they're attacked and eaten by a lion or a wild animal. And that lion digests their um, human flesh. Well, how does, how does that look on resurrection day? And they're laughing and they're scorning. Or, you know, if somebody's burned 
and, and, and they're cremated and their, their, their body turns to ashes. How in the world is God gonna raise ashes into some glorious, eternal, tangible body? Now, before we go any further, by the way, I had to add this, and that is that I, I'm kind of surprised, but I really shouldn't be. You know what, one of my, the top three questions that I get asked as a pastor one of the top three questions that I get asked is this. It's not some deep theological question. It's, Pastor Mike, is it okay for Christians to be cremated? I get that all the time. And so I want to answer that real quick, and then we'll go back to the sermon. Okay, in case you were wondering whether that's okay for Christians to do that, let's think about it. If you and I were to go to a grave of, let's say, an Old Testament believer. Okay, that's a long time ago. Depending on how that body was buried and we dug it up, what would we find in that grave? Dust. We would find a bunch of dust. And so the question is, do you think God will be able to raise that dust into a glorious body on the day of resurrection? Yes or no? Yes. God can. Because God can do whatever he wants. Okay, so if God can raise dust on resurrection day, why can't he raise ashes on resurrection day? You see, here's the truth. The truth is when you decide, if you decide this, to be cremated someday, all you're doing is speeding up the process of decomposition. What would have taken a long time can take place in just two hours. And by the way, it's so much cheaper. I feel like I'm giving a commercial for cremation here. Maybe they should hire me down at the funeral home. I don't know. But it's so true. Why spend all that money? Amen. All right. So God can raise dust. God can raise ashes. God can do whatever he wants to do. But the skeptics in Corinth and the skeptics today, they would say, the dead are going to rise. Whatever, Paul. How's that going to happen? And so Paul you know how polite Paul can be, says in verse 36 to these people, you fools or foolish one. What you sow, right, what you plant, that's the idea there, is not made alive unless it what? Dies. Okay, he's using the example of a seed. Verse 37, and what you sow, what you plant, You do not plant that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Verse 38, but God. Everybody say, but God. There's the answer right there. But God gives it, that's the seed, a body as he pleases. And to each seed its own body. And so if you're taking notes, here's your first point. God has given us an illustration of the resurrection from nature, all around us. Paul's trying to say to these skeptics in Corinth 2,000 years ago, hey guys, get your head out of the sand and look around. The resurrection is illustrated all around you. Every time a seed is planted and that seed dies in the soil and then that seed comes to life and something breaks through the ground like a plant or a carnation or a rose bush or a, a field of wheat, whatever it may be, That's an illustration of the resurrection. And so just think this through um, with me. You take a seed, right? How many of you guys like to garden around here? 
Okay, so you take the little seed and you put it in the soil and you cover it with dirt. Now what happens, what you don't see, is that the outer material part of that seed eventually decomposes in the soil. And you think it's dead, right? But here's the thing. At that point, a miracle takes place. Life comes forth from the inside of that outer shell of that seed. The life germ swells. And all of a sudden you have roots that form and are pushing downward. And you have shoots that form and are pushing upward. And then eventually something breaks out of the soil and it grows into something big and beautiful and awesome. And it doesn't look anything like the seed that was planted. I like redwood trees. I'm always amazed to think that a redwood tree came from a little seed. Check it out. Isn't it amazing, the change? You put that little tiny seed that can fit in a groove in the palm of your hand, and you put it in the right soil, and what happens later on is you have this beautiful redwood tree. And so it used to be a tiny seed, but now it's a massive tree. And again, I like redwoods, so I'll show you some more pictures here, but it's amazing how big these things are. I read of one redwood tree that is over 250 feet tall and over 25 feet in diameter. That's amazing, that's massive that something like that can come from a tiny little seed. Okay, what's your point? Here's my point. My point is it's the same in our resurrection. Not that we're gonna be 250 feet tall, that's not the idea. The idea is what we now are is gonna be different than what we shall be. We're gonna be so much better. We're gonna be so much more glorious. So Paul's saying, come on, skeptics, you, you, you're fools. God can do whatever he wants to do. He continues this argument in verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh of animals, another kind of flesh of fish and of birds. There are also celestial bodies, that's sun, moon, stars, and terrestrial bodies, that's what he just said, men, animals, fish, birds. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. And so once again, the skeptics are saying, the dead are gonna rise. Ha, whatever, dream on, Paul. How's that gonna happen? With what body are they gonna come? And Paul says, you wanna know how the resurrection's gonna take place? Look back again at verse 38. Okay, look at verse 38. I want everybody to say the first two words. Go ahead. And there's your answer, Paul would say. God, how's it gonna happen? God, that's how the resurrection's gonna happen. Here's your next point. If God has already created terrestrial men, fish, animals, birds, thousands of species, and celestial sun, moon, stars, not million, but billions of galaxies, 
light years away from each other. Hey, if he can do all that, he can also create future bodies that will be engineered for eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what the problem in Corinth was? You know what the problem today is? It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. People who deny the resurrection, they say they deny it for intellectual reasons. That's not, don't be fooled. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. It's a faith problem. They refuse to put their trust in a God who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and sovereign. But we choose to put our trust in that God. We believe that God is large and in charge. And so if he can create the Milky Way galaxy, if he can create the entire universe, if he can create the earth just so perfectly away from the sun that if it was any farther, we freeze. If it was any closer, we burn up. If he tilts us on our axis and causes us to, to spin at just the right amount of speed in order to sustain life, and I could go on and on and on. But if God can do all that, if God can create celestial bodies and God can create terrestrial bodies, then why in the world can God not create a new resurrected body that is engineered for eternity? Of course he can. Of course he can. Don't doubt. Have faith. It's a heart problem. So look at verse 42. Paul continues his argument. He says, so also is the resurrection. By the way, I love the fact that he's talking about in verse 41 how the sun has a certain glory, the moon has a certain glory, the stars have a certain glory, they differ from others. So also is the resurrection. Some think, some scholars, and I tend to agree, that in our resurrected bodies, some will be more glorious than others. Some will shine brighter than others. What determines that? How passionate have you served the Lord in your lifetime? I don't know about you, but I want to shine forever and ever and ever. And on that day, the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive rewards based on our works. Do you want to shine? Do you want to shine brightly? Can somebody please say amen? <laughs> Do you want to shine brightly forever and ever and ever? We're so caught up in this little body that's here today and gone tomorrow. We think so much about it. We put so much effort into it. And we don't give a, a, a thought about the, I was going to say something else. We'll take that out of the tape. But we don't give a thought to the body we're going to be in a billion years from now. Why, why is that, church family? Why do we think so much about this? That's here today and gone tomorrow. And we don't think at all about the body we're going to have for billions of years. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth, the Apostle Paul says. Look at verse 42 again. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, is raised in what? In corruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in what? Glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in what? Power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised, uh, what kind of body? Spiritual. There is a natural body and there is, there is, there is, there is a spiritual body. Do you ever think about it? Are you preparing for it? Are you excited about it? 
And so, hey, when we die, our corruptible natural remains are gonna be put in the ground or burned up and put in an urn, however you choose to do that. But on resurrection day, that incorruption is gonna turn, as I said, that corruption is gonna turn to incorruption, that mortal is gonna turn to immortality, that natural is gonna turn into a glorious, eternal, spiritual, powerful body. Now, note this. We're not gonna be resuscitated on the resurrection day. We're gonna be resurrected. Last week, I talked about how Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first one who ever rose from the dead. And some of you thought, well, wait a time out. I was having my devotions, and in Mark chapter five, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then I was reading in Luke 7, he raised the widow's son from the dead. And I was reading in John 11, everybody knows this, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so if he raised those three people during his three-year ministry, and then he rose from the dead, how can he be the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? How can Jesus be the first one raised from the dead? Would you even know how to answer that? Because that's the kind of questions people ask. Well, here's your answer. Those were not resurrections, they were resuscitations. Those people, Jesus raised their mortal body back to a mortal body. In other words, they were raised to life only to die again. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came walking out of that tomb, guess what? Lazarus was resuscitated back into his natural body, and later in life, Lazarus got sick, and Lazarus died. People say, man, we should see more resurrections in the church. Isn't it great that Lazarus was raised from the dead? Not if you're Lazarus. <laughs> Absent from the body means to be present with who? The Lord. He was in paradise. Can you imagine Lazarus? And all of a sudden, he's called back from heaven, and he sees the earth, a little dot, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he's thinking, no, I don't want to go back there. That's a fallen world filled with sickness and disease and terrorism and et cetera. I don't want to go back. But the Lord wanted him to go back so that he could glorify his name. And so again, Jesus raised their mortal bodies back to mortal bodies. They were raised to life only to die again. But when he raises us at the coming resurrection, he will raise our mortal bodies and change them into immortal bodies, bodies that will never die. It's our hope, our sure hope. John Phillips says this. One of these days, we are going to have a body of power. It will never get tired. It will never grow old. It'll never stumble, never fall, never get ill, never wear out. Praise God, never yield to sin. Instead, it will be an invincible fortress, an incredible force at the disposal of the Lord for the development of all his future plans for the universe. What a great day that's gonna be, right? No more cancer. Think about this. Can you imagine no more cancer? No more heart disease. No more sickness. No more depression. No more anxiety attacks. No more gray hair. No more thinning hair. 
No more baldness, guys. No more bad teeth. No more aches. No more pains. And the greatest thing of all, no more death. Check out verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, what was his name? By the way, he was literal, not allegorical. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So different. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man, verse 47, was of the earth. He was made of what? The second man is the Lord, where's he from? As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's me and you. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly, those who have been born again, those who have put their faith in Christ. And so let's, let's, let's back up. The first man, Adam, he was formed of the dust. He was placed in paradise. He was placed in Eden. And there was no sickness. There was no death. There was no all the other stuff that we just talked about. God's initial intention for the world was paradise. So stop looking at all the terrorist attacks around the world and blaming it on God. It was never his first choice. His first choice was Eden. His first choice was perfection. His first choice was paradise. But the man of dust that he formed, by the way, that man of dust, he could have obeyed God. He absolutely, and Eve could have obeyed God, and their kids could have obeyed God, and their kids' kids, and kids' kids, all the way down to you and I, and we could still be living in a paradise. But the thing is, God gave us a free will with free choice. Why? Because he didn't want us a bunch of robots programmed to praise God. He wanted us to make that decision on our own. The sad part about it is that the vast majority of his creation thumbs their nose at God. And now what you see in the world with all the terrorism is a fact of the matter. It's, it's, it's because of us. We are reaping what we have sown. And it's not going to get better. We're not going to see peace in the world until the Prince of Peace comes back. And then what is he going to do? He's going to restore Eden. He's going to restore paradise. He's going to reverse the curse. And so the first man, Adam, was formed of the dust. He disobeyed. He caused the curse. But thank God, the last Adam, the second man, Jesus, he wasn't from the dust. He was from heaven. And he had a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. He went to the cross out of love for me and you to pay for our sins. He died. He was buried. Third day, he marches out of the tomb, victorious over death, sin, and hell. He's our hero. He's the only way. And so one day, as I said, he's going to reverse the curse. What's going to happen is he's going to make all things new. People who chose him in their life, believers in Christ, and the world, he's going to make it all New. Look at verse 49. One of the most exciting verses in all the Bible, verse 49. 
In fact, let's, let's read it all together. Go ahead. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the who? Heavenly man. Isn't that good news? Here's your next point. After the resurrection, we will bear the image of Christ. Now, we, we know a little bit of what this is going to be like. We don't know all of it. But right now, we bear the image of Adam. Right now, we bear the image of the man of dust. Right now, we're in these natural bodies. And these natural bodies are wearing down. I, I make myself work out. I never, 90% of the time, feel like working out. But once I get there and I'm working out, I'm so glad I went. And so I don't run anymore because of the pressure that puts on your knees and your back and your hips. And so now, in my older age, I'm doing this elliptical thing. You guys know what I mean, that thing that's on an incline. And so I'm there, and I'm, 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 I'm doing the elliptical. What I try to do is to get my heart rate, because it shows your heart rate, up to a certain point for a certain amount of time. Why? Because I'm trying to strengthen my lungs. I'm trying to strengthen my heart. I'm trying to get some endorphins pumping in my body so that I can feel good without caffeine all the time. Right? I'm doing that. And by the way, I could never do that. I could never get my heart rate up to a certain amount, and I have a confession to make. But this is what I do. I listen to Rocky, and Rocky helps me. <laughs> he, helps me he helps me to work out really hard. It's amazing what the mind will do, mind over matter. It's amazing when you hear the dun, 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 and you start going faster and faster, and sweat's going all over the place, and you don't care what your body feels like because, man, you're going to make it to the top of those stairs, and you're going to jump up and down, and you're going to say, yo, Adrian, or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> I, I do that. Why? I do that because I'm trying to stay a little bit healthy as I'm getting older. But here's what I know. It doesn't matter if I spend every day for two hours on the elliptical, I'm still gonna die. So thank God that even though right now I'm in the image of the man of dust, one day the promise because of Christ is that I will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. And I will receive a new body. I will receive a glorious body. And you don't have to go to the gym to work on that thing because that thing is engineered for eternity. Check out Philippians 3.21. He will take our weak mortal bodies and he will, what? What's the word there? Change them into glorious bodies like his own. Look at 1 John 3.2. 1 John 3.2, when he shall appear, everybody say, we shall be like him. Go ahead. For we shall see him as he is. We're going to be like him. So what was Jesus like in his resurrected body? Okay, remember we can get a glimpse of this. We can't figure the whole thing out. But you ever wonder what you're going to be like for billions of years? Okay, what was Jesus like in his resurrected body? He was around 33 years old. He defied the laws of nature. He could walk through walls. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't some mystical spirit. He was a tangible body. He told them, put your fingers in the holes of my hands. Stick your hand in my side. He, listen to this, he also conversed with people and he could be recognized. Another question I get asked all the time. Pastor Mike, will I be able to recognize my loved ones in heaven? Of course, you're gonna be smarter in heaven, not dumber. 
course. Jesus ate food. Can I hear hallelujah, please? Oh, man, isn't that great? Now, I don't know how it comes out. I don't, I don't want to go there. But I know that Jesus, in his resurrected body, he ate food. He chomped down on that fish, and he, he, he felt how good that is. Those of you who love food like I do, how awesome it is to eat. That's going to be our experience forever. And then my favorite favorite is that Jesus could fly. The ascension. There's a whole group of people that could attest to this in the first century. We saw him fly. <laughs> Literally, tangibly in this body. He, it's not a fairy tale. It's not some, listen, this is all documented fact of history with hundreds of eyewitnesses. And we saw him taken up to heaven. Why do you think that one guy has changed history? Why do you think we divide history by one man, B.C.A.D.? It's because when he came, he made an incredible impact. And so when he shall appear, we're going to be just, not just like him, but we're going to be like him, which means we'll be engineered for eternity. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, that's the way we are right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't walk into heaven in these bodies. Nor does corruption inherit in corruption. And so because you and I can't walk into heaven with these bodies, God's got to make us like Jesus. He's got to engineer us for eternity. And so all those verses, all the way through 50, that's the coming resurrection. So if I can have your attention right now, I want to switch gears and I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about this? that one day this coming resurrection is going to happen. Nothing can stop it, whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. Okay, so when the coming resurrection day happens, there'll be billions with a B of remains in graves all across the world, remains of believers, billions of believers. But when that day occurs, there will also be millions of believers who will still be alive. And so what's gonna happen to them? And I believe it's gonna happen in my lifetime, so I like to say, what's gonna happen to us? Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a, what's the word? Mystery, okay? It's not taught in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. Paul was an apostle. He saw the resurrected Christ. When he wrote, Peter said he's writing scripture. Paul has apostolic authority. When he wrote, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord right here. And so God revealed to the apostle Paul around AD 51, and he wrote about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. Later on, around AD 55, he writes about the rapture in 1 Corinthians. He's telling us what's gonna happen to the millions of believers who are alive on resurrection day. And so verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that's a metaphor for death, but we shall all be changed. Notice he said we, 
Paul thought, hey, this rapture could happen in my lifetime. He says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in the dead will be raised incorruptible. Okay, there's the coming resurrection. Do you see that? And the dead, dead people need to rise, okay? And the dead will be raised incorruptible. That's the coming resurrection. But check out the last five words, and we shall be changed. There's the coming rapture. The resurrection is for dead saints. The rapture is for living saints. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so I got good news for you, church. If we're that generation, okay, there's a generation that will never die. If that's us, if the Lord chooses to come in our lifetime and I believe that he's going to, I don't set dates, I don't say it's gonna be on a certain day because Jesus said no one, no one knows the day or the hour. I don't believe anyone knows the month or the year either. Anybody who sets dates, run from that person, okay? That's, that's not biblical. But we do see that the stage is being set for the Lord's return. And I don't have time to get into it, but when you read Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, when you see Russian troops just over the border of Israel in Syria, and you see them making a military alliance with Iran, and so there's Iranian troops just over the border in Israel, and you know that Magog and Persia, Russia and Iran are going to come together in the last days, and they're going to attack Israel. When you read that in the scriptures, and it says in the last days, and you see in our newspapers today that there's actually troops that are there, so they don't have to go very far, you think, maybe this is going to happen soon. It may not be today, it may not be next week, it may not even be next year, it may not even be five years from now, but it looks like the stage is set for the Lord to come. And so it's time to wake from our sleep, to get our heads out of the sand, and to live for the Lord like we've never lived for him before, because the time is short. Now, the good news is that if he chooses to come back in our lifetime and we are alive, we're not going to be resurrected because we're still alive. Resurrection is for dead people. What's going to happen to us? He said in the text, we're going to be changed. What does the word change mean in the original language? It means to exchange. One thing for another, it means to transform. It's a metamorphosis. Whenever I read through this passage, I always think of the caterpillar. Now, can you guys imagine what it would be like to be a caterpillar? Can you imagine if God chose to make us caterpillars? Can you imagine if you were walking around on these 16 little tiny legs and it takes you forever to get anywhere that you want to go and you look as you're crossing the street and it's so far to the other side of the road and you're thinking a half hour later when you're only about halfway across, how long is this going to take? And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, a car smashes you to death. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a caterpillar? Can you imagine? Just think about this. You're a caterpillar. And you see a, an eagle fly by, and you think, oh, man, would that be awesome. Because you know what? As a caterpillar, I'm so frustrated in this. I feel so limited in this. 
I feel, listen to this, like I was created for something more than this. And then all of a sudden, one day as a caterpillar, you feel something inside of you that you've never felt before. You can't explain it. And so you're driven to a tree and you're crawling up the tree. And next thing you know, you're attaching yourself to a twig. The next thing you know, you're shedding your skin. You don't know what's happening. And you're exuding this sticky stuff called chrysalis. And the chrysalis is forming a cocoon around you. And it's hardening. And you're in there for a really long time. It's almost like you're dead. But then one day, that chrysalis starts to shake, and it cracks open, and out comes, not a caterpillar, but something brand new. What? A butterfly. Check it out. We right now in our natural bodies are like the caterpillar, limited, restricted, fallen, temporal, but one day, we're going to fly. One day, we're going to be glorious. One day we're going to have colors. Who knows exactly what it's going to look like? But orange and yellow and black and white, it's going to be absolutely incredible. And one day we're going to be able to jump off that twig, so to speak, and fly off into the sky free. What's going to happen to us? There's going to be a metamorphosis. Why? Because we deserve it? Help me out, church family, because we deserve it? Because we worked really hard and earned our salvation, yes or no? No, all of us, because of our sin and the fact we turned away from God, we deserve death and hell. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son and Jesus paid for our sins so that he could change us and make us new and that a billion with a B years from now will just be getting started singing and worshiping and praising him. That's the good news that we bring. And that's the best news of all. And by the way, you can't match any, any kind of message from the world. You can't match anything with what I just said. We got the best deal anywhere. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the best ever. We have this good news. What are we doing not talking about it? What are we doing hiding it in a corner like we got some kind of disease? We don't have a disease. We got a cure for the disease. And we should be shouting it from the rooftops. So we will be changed when Jesus comes back. So real quick, let's see how it's going to go down. Shoot on over to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. This is the, uh, the other major text for the coming rapture. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, metaphor for died. These are believers who've died. And by the way, your body goes in the ground, but absent from the body is present with who? The Lord. Your spirit immediately goes with the Lord. Okay, so hey, church at Thessalonica and church at Calvary PSL, I don't want you to be ignorant about your loved ones who died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For, verse 14, for, what's the word? If, there's the choice. God doesn't zap you and save you, and you have no free will in the matter at all. No, over and over, from Genesis to Revelation, you and I have a choice. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with Jesus those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, the departed spirits of people who died in Christ. Jesus is bringing them. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, come before, those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then, what's the word? We. Paul thought maybe this could happen in his lifetime. Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be, and I want you to underline the words, caught up. Circle it, highlight it, I'll come back to it. We shall be caught up together with them, that's our departed loved ones who died in Christ. We'll, we'll, we'll be hanging out with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. What's gonna happen? One day, the father, and he only knows the date. I'm sure he revealed it to his son when his son went back to heaven. But one day, the father's gonna say to the son, hey son, it's time, go get your bride. Who's the bride? The church, blood-bought, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Go get your bride. And with a shout, right, Jesus is gonna descend, the bridegroom. He's excited about seeing his bride. And he's gonna go all the way down, not to the earth, that's later. He's gonna put brakes on at the clouds. But he's gonna be bringing with them the spirits of those who died in faith those who died believing in Jesus. And the spirits, they're not gonna put the brakes on at the clouds. Jesus is gonna stop, but they're gonna keep on going down to wherever their remains are. Maybe it's an urn and some ashes. Maybe it's a casket and some dust. Maybe it's in a 100 different places. All God needs is one atom. And their spirits are gonna reunite with their remains, and all of a sudden, they're gonna be changed, and they're gonna receive a resurrected new glorious body. And immediately they're gonna go right back up into the clouds where Jesus is. But when that happens, there'll be millions of believers who are still alive. What's gonna happen to them? I like to say what's gonna happen to us? Well, look at verse 17. He says it right there in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, then we who are alive and remain shall be, what's the two words? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. If you're taking notes, this is important. What does caught up mean? Harpazo in the Greek, it means to seize. It means to carry off by force. It means to snatch away. In the Greek, it's harpazo, and here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be people who are gonna laugh at you for believing in the rapture. Oh yeah, whatever, Tim LaHaye left behind. What a joke, ha ha ha. Well, you know what? We proudly believe in the rapture of the church. We don't make any bones about it. We believe it because it's right there in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter four. They can laugh at us, and by the way, Christians laugh at Christians like me for believing in a literal rapture. But I just take the Bible at face value. And so they'll say to you, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. And then you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and you say, you see, caught up 
In the Greek, that means harpazo. If you get a Latin Vulgate Bible, it's rapturo, rapturo, from where we get our English word. Help me out. It's right there in the Bible. The rapture is in the Bible. And so, one day, you're going to be living life as normal. You're going to be working at your job if you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, this is not for you. You're going to be working at your job. You're going to be eating at your favorite restaurant. You're going to be sound asleep. I don't know. But the Lord, if he chooses to come in our lifetime, is going to catch you up. Now, if you're at work, your coworkers who don't know the Lord are going to freak out. Where is he? Where is she? They were just here and now they're gone. If you're at your favorite restaurant, you may miss a really good meal. But here's what you need to know. The marriage supper of the lamb is so much better. If you're sleeping, you may think you're dreaming, but then you'll look at Jesus and you'll know you're not dreaming. If you're a pilot of an airplane, I feel sorry for those on your plane who don't know the Lord. Hopefully the co-pilot doesn't know the Lord so he can land that baby safely. But ladies and gentlemen, this is going to happen. Why? Because we can show you from the Bible that there's hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled in literal history. So why do we think this one's not? It's gonna happen. We just gotta change our thinking to match up with the word of God. When will the rapture take place? If you're taking notes, I believe with all my heart, it's before the tribulation. Now, you may say, no, we're going through the tribulation, and we'll agree to disagree. We're not talking about the virgin birth or the deity of Christ here, but this is my firm conviction. First the rapture, then the tribulation, then the second coming, then the millennium, then the new heavens and the new earth. Just read Revelation. It's right there in chronological order. But again, if you want to... Al- interpret the the Bible allegorically, you can make it say whatever you want. And so here's what we gotta understand. When you carefully read the scriptures and you take the parts that were meant to be taken literally, literally, what you find out is that the rapture and the second coming are two totally different events. One comes before the seven year tribulation, the other one at the very end. One is eminent, the rapture's eminent. There's no signs that have to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. It could happen before I say amen today. But the second coming, there's lots of signs that have to take place before the second coming. You can read about it in Revelation chapter six through 19. The rapture, Jesus comes for his bride. At the second coming, he comes with his bride. We're going down with him so we can rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. At the rapture, Jesus will come as a groom to save his bride, the church. At the second coming, he's coming as a warrior to save his people, the Jews. When you look at the book of Revelation, which we have taught through verse by verse in this church, and you see that chapter one is the revealing of the resurrected Christ. Chapter two and three is seven letters to seven, what? Churches. And then chapter four, right in the very beginning, John, who's a believer, hears a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here. And he's snatched up and he's in heaven. 
Sounds a lot like the rapture to me. And the next thing you know, in chapters four and five, the church is in heaven. How do you know that? Because it says those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb are singing to Jesus in heaven. That means we're up there, we're not down here. When you get to chapter six, all the way through 19, you see that there's seven um, seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. It's the tribulation period. It's all right there in chapter six through 19. By the way, when you go from chapter six, verse one, and you go all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation, you never see the word church until you get to the very end in chapter 22, verse 15. Why? Because the church isn't here during the tribulation. Why? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you men... Let me see your hands if you're married. Men, raise your hands, please. All right, that means you're engaged. All right, when you're engaged, how many of you guys beat the pulp out of your fiance? Don't answer that, by the way. I don't wanna you know, get anybody in trouble, but here's what I know. You didn't beat on her, you treasured her. Why? She's your bride. And people will say, well, well, there can't be, you know, all the different generations of Christians have all gone through tribulation. What makes you guys think you're so special that you're not going to endure tribulation? Well, think about this. Every generation that, of believers that have gone through tribulation, that tribulation originated from the world and the flesh and the devil. But the last seven years of history on this world, it's not going to be tribulation from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's going to be the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb of God is not going to pour out his wrath on you. Why? Because God already poured out his wrath of judgment on his son so that you could be saved from wrath forever. You're his bride. Man, he loves you. He treasures you. He cherishes you. So let people laugh all they want. But when we get up in those clouds, we can look over at our post-trib friends and say, I told you so. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible, verse 54, has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he begins to taunt death in verse 55 as the worship team comes out. Paul is taunting death here. He says, oh death, where is your sting? In other words, death, man, you're like a bee without a stinger. You can't hurt me. You're weak. You're powerless. You're nothing. I'm not afraid of you. He says, oh Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin is the law, right? When you read the law of Moses, we see that we're sinners, Bad news, good news, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, you find out what it's there for. Okay, you know why it's there for? You know what it's there for? It's, it's application time, church. This is for you. My beloved brethren, be apathetic. Go to church once a month. Never share your faith. Give a couple bucks in the offering. Never seek the Lord. Never read your Bible during the week. Is that what it says? 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to call us to account. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.